Welcome to the Asia Unbound podcast. I'm Liz Economy, and I'm delighted to welcome Zach Dykdwald to the studio. Zach is the founder of a New York City-based think tank and consultancy focusing on youth in China and the author of an insightful new book, Young China, How the Restless Generation Will Change Their Country and the World. Given the theme of this book on China's millennials, I thought it would be fun to turn over today's podcast to two of our own experts who are themselves millennials here at the council, Malin Meisenheimer and Viola Rothschild. They'll lead the session and I'll let them take it from here. Thanks, Liz, and welcome, Zach. To start off, I'd like to ask you about the title of your book, Young China. How is Young China different than Old China? Thanks, Viola, and just to say it's so nice to be here today. The way I break it down, there's about four ways that Young China is different than Old China. The first is they're open-minded. The older generation in China grew up behind a wall. I have friends in Guizhou whose parents were the most popular in their village at the time because they had a calendar on the wall the fields of Europe. It was 12 pictures of Europe, and that was it. That was the view of the outside world. Most of the interaction with the outside world was through slogans. This young generation has grown up with the internet. They've grown up with the view of the world. They watch our TV, they watch our movies, they read our news, they know our history. They're far more global than the older generation in China. The second point is capitalism. Around the time that my parents were considering going to uh, Woodstock, my friend's parents in China I've actually met people who had who had to do this were, were eating tree bark. It was an extremely impoverished moment in China quite recently. This young generation has grown up watching, I mean, the largest communist party in the world create the, one of the greatest capitalist successes in history. They've lived that. They've witnessed that. The third point is 421. As recently as 1950, the average life expectancy in China was 36. And there was about five to six kids per family. So there was a lot of children and you died young. That created a sort of demographic pyramid. Because of a massive longevity revolution over the next 60 years, that life expectancy has doubled and due to the one child policy, now there's very few children per family. So you have the four to one problem. You have four grandparents for every two parents for every one child. And the last, and I think this, is, this point is particularly important, is clout. If you were to ask an older person in China when they were young, is China powerful? Can China lead? The answer would be no. This young generation expects it. Those are some really interesting points. And so I just wanted to follow up with nearly half a billion millennials attempting to capture youth culture in China is a tremendous undertaking. Why did you decide to do this project? Yeah, it's a great question. It's, it's not difficult to figure out an entire generation, but I've always believed that good relationships are based on understanding. And the China that I felt like was being described to me in the news, in the press, and sort of reverberating back through my friends and family back home while I was still in China, it was enormously different than the, than the China that I was experiencing for myself. And I realized that this young generation, the realities that they inhabit, their tastes, their wants, their desires, what they dream of, what keeps them up at night, that wasn't being reflected in the stories that were being told back here. You know, the new, if, if you were to just watch the news, a lot of people had this idea of China that was sort of a Maserati driving, but dog eating person who lives in a ghost town, but also has to be crammed onto a subway because of overpopulation. It was, it was a dramatic and conflicting image of China. Extraordinary. What I try to do in this book is focus on the ordinary. I, I truly do believe that, you know, economically, uh, politically, 
at a very high level understanding is the foundation for something like world peace. But then just personal relationships, if we don't come from an era, a place of understanding for this young generation and don't take the time and interest, then I frankly just hope that I can be a part of that bridge process. Absolutely. So you were talking about sort of this, you know, conflicting picture of China or and, you know, Chinese youth in particular that we have. What would you say the biggest challenges that China's youth will have to face in the coming years? It's a really good question, Viola. I touched on it before, and I would say there's about three large problems, but demography looms large. The 4 to one demography means a lot for this young generation economically, politically, and personally. It poses what I call one of the largest spiritual challenges to China's future. And that's because for a young person in China, a lot of what it means to be good in Chinese tradition is to be able to care for your parents. It's the idea of xiaoshun. We, we've, we translate it to filial piety. It's not a very complete translation, but the ability to take care of your parents, to be able to be successful and, and to usher them into old age. In China, it's called uh, it means the return and feed model. It's this idea that the parent bird looks after the baby bird. Once the baby bird is ready to leave the nest, the parent often looks after them a little bit later into life. But once they are able to start, start their own family and start their own home, they go out. Later in life, they come back and care for the old. That was extremely easy when people were only living to about 40 and when you had five or six siblings to help out. Now this young generation is faced with how do you economically support an aging China? That's one issue. The second issue is the transition from imitative to an innovative economy. A lot of people know China to be a copycat economy. That's not who this young generation is. And their demography, frankly, will not support that in the future. When I went to China, the first time I remember walking around a supermarket at the time, and I was in the stationary section, and on every backpack, on notebooks, on eraser heads, you'd see one person's face, and it was a, an icon from the West. And I was never, you know, you never really know who's going to make it through the cultural wall in China. For instance, like the one of the most popular songs or the first song that or first Western song that most people hear in China is Yesterday Once More by the Carpenters. I don't think a lot of people could really <laughs> predict that. So the person, the, the person's face on these backpacks, eraser heads and notebooks is actually Steve Jobs. What was interesting to me about that was it was a time when every young person in China was being told that if you don't innovate, if you can't be creative in how you're creating value, not just for the economy at large, but for yourself, then you aren't going to be able to cut it in the modern world. China is not a copycat generation anymore. They can't be. And so how will this young generation transition from that imitative to an innovative economy? That's one of the largest challenges they face. And the third is political. How to lead. It is an easier role to be a supporting cast member on the world stage. China is no longer that. One of the interesting things about our current political moments is as it's being perceived that the United States is shrinking away from Asia, China is being forced to, to step into the spotlight perhaps earlier than they originally wanted. They've actually lost control of that transition into a position of global leadership. And so this young generation had to assume a position of leadership. And it's a tougher challenge, I think, than most people really understand. They're rising to that challenge. And from, a, from an area of innovation, from an area of politics as well, we're starting to see China take a more more of a leadership role, but it's not easy.
So you've mentioned a little bit about how Chinese culture has influenced how Chinese millennials see their family, see relationships with others. But I was hoping you could speak a little bit about how China's historical legacy has shaped the current generation's views. It's a really well-asked question, Malin, because this particular generation in China has a different understanding of their historical legacy than generations before them. In my book, I focus mostly on the born after 90 generation. China doesn't have millennials. I talk about millennials because it's, it's a Western construct and people can understand that. But really, it's sort of a marketing ploy to sort of figure out who you're going to sell hula hoops to and how. It's a, it's a marketing tool. In China, the way they divide their generations is on the decade. You have the born after 60 generation, born after 70, 80, and 90. The born after 90 generation is a real political pivot because the story that this generation grew up with, their understanding of their own government, fundamentally changed. And that's because of Tiananmen Square. So the patriotic education campaign began in 1990. And so that switched the focus from a Mao focus from, wow, since 1949, our country's been great. Look at all the reforms we've accomplished. Look at how far we've come, because that was sort of a pill that was difficult to swallow. And they began to focus on China's historic greatness. That historic greatness is reflected in the major idea that Xi Jinping is putting out into the world right now, which is this idea of fuxing, it's often translated as rejuvenation. It also can be translated as renaissance. This young generation has watched their country rise over the last, I mean, so I'm, I'm born in 1990. So if someone was born in 1990 in China, they have seen incredible change. So they have watched their country rise into power again. Rejuvenation suggests that they are returning to a place of prominence. Just to, to illustrate the point, in 1990, the GDP per capita, well, from 1992 to today, the GDP per capita in the United States has increased two and a half times, which is really substantial. In China, so my friends in China who were also born in 1990, the per capita GDP has increased 25 times. They see their country as one of the greatest, if not the greatest, rags to riches stories in history. They were old enough to remember racks. They remember the poverty of their country and they watched the rise over the last 27, 28 years. Has it come at a cost? Absolutely. Are people aware of that cost? Increasingly so. But they have respect for their history and are proud of this moment that China is stepping into, much more so, I think, than we, we give them credit for. So following up on your mention of the GDP, as many people know, China is shifting from a saving economy to a consumer economy. If you were a businessman in China, how would you appeal to this new generation of consumers? It's a great question, Malin. I would, and for some of the work that I'm doing now, I, I always encourage people to honor the fact that this young generation has their own identity. So many people I talk to just kind of treat them like millennials, but sort of over there. Not the case. Their sense of self their influences, how they're forming their opinions is fundamentally different than the millennials over here in the West. With that said, they have a tremendous desire, interest, and sort of thirst for Western products. But understanding how to approach them and how to appeal to their unique needs, that to me is the first step. Usually the first thing I say to people when I sit down, maybe if they're, if they're in the private sector, I tell them that with this young generation, don't expect modernization to mean westernization. I call this young generation the identity generation. They're the first generation who's not as concerned with questions of 
sustenance. What am I going to eat? How do I create safety for me and my family? This is the first generation that gets to decide what does it mean to be Chinese in the modern world? And a big part of that means what am I going to wear? Chengdu, where I lived for a long time, just got you know, written about in a magazine as the most fashionable city in China. What, you know, what am I going to wear? How do I want to present myself? What do I stand for? What brands do I want to align myself with? There's a different constellation of considerations in China. And coming from a place of understanding will enable you to, you know, if you want to politically align with them, fine. If you want to, if you want them to buy more soda or jeans or basketball tickets, that works too. But you have to come from understanding and respect them for their differences. Great. So I want to pick apart some of the things you're saying about identity and sort of differences between Chinese millennials and maybe, you know, American or millennials in the West. One of my favorite scenes in your book was when you were describing hanging out on a rooftop, drinking beer with one of your Chinese friends, and you ask him what his greatest fear is. And what he said resonates with, I think, all of us in the roughly, you know, 22 to 30 range fear of failure, of not realizing our potential, of not being where we are or, you know, with who we want to be with. And nothing about his answers struck me as distinctly Chinese. So my question for you is, how are Chinese millennials different than American millennials or other young people around the world? That's a really good question. So I'm going to break it up into parts and then I'm going to return to that story. That story is, of, uh, is in the final chapter on government. So the first issue is scale. You know, there's, there's a big to-do about American millennials. How do we figure out what they want? How are we going to uh, imagine how they're going to be more politically engaged? There's about 80 million American millennials. There's 400 million millennials in China. Five times more, more than the population of the United States and Canada combined. The second major difference is competitive and hardworking. I'm, I know you guys are probably thinking, hey, wait, I'm competitive and hardworking. I hear that. But in China, the project of childhood is different. When in the United States, we're at basketball, swim practice, whatever, after school or playing video games with our friends on the weekends or having sleepovers, your counterpart, your peer in China is studying. The competition for a position in high school, for a position in college, for a position in the workforce, just nationally, is so fierce that they don't have a choice but to be competitive and hardworking. I tell this story, I, my first job in, in China, well, my first job was actually as a golf teacher. I don't know how to play golf, but I, uh, while I was working on language stuff at the day, I, I moonlighted as a golf teacher, watched a couple of videos on YouTube and, and tried that for a couple of weeks, got found out pretty soon. But I also taught English for a quick moment at a, at a school geared towards three to six year olds, so early learning. And we were teaching coding and technology as well as English at the same time. So I was doing it somewhat bilingually and these were three to six year olds and the kids were adorable they were you know they're three to six year olds they were great and while they were on the computer or figuring out how to use a tablet at the back of the room there is this big glass wall and you had for for the six kids you had 12 parents and 24 grandparents bearing down on them watching every click of a mouse or twirl of a robot arm or something like that I didn't mention this before, but the amount of pressure this young generation feels. We talk about them as the little emperors. So from this 421 problem, it sort of works as a funnel. They get lots more attention. But with that comes pressure to perform in school, to get a job, to, you know, everyone's concerned if you're marrying or not. Imagine every single person in your family and their aunts, uncles, brothers, sisters, every time you go home being like, so where's your boyfriend? Where's your girlfriend? It's nine 
this young generation in China has to be more competitive in a way that we can't quite understand here. The next point is they're proud. And again, I'm, you know, I feel proud to be an American. But this, this young generation in China is tremendously proud of who they are. Sort of as a departure even from the older generation in China. They've witnessed their country rise from poverty at a scale and speed unmatched in history. And, you know, in part because of the educations they received, but also in part just because of the evidence they've seen. Uh, they've traveled the world. Actually, two-thirds of all passport holders in China are under the age of 35. Two-thirds. One-third of all people studying abroad in the United States right now are from China. The next best-represented country is India, and that's about one-tenth. So it's not just a lot of people. You know, China is sending people abroad. And the more interaction they're having with the outside world, the more they're realizing that, you know, all governments and all societies have flaws. Maybe ours isn't so bad. You know, whatever judgment we have about about that, that's that's maybe for a later date. But this young generation is is proud of what their country is becoming. I bring up this point also in, in that we currently have a, a president in the United States who was elected on the campaign of Make America Great Again, which suggests that it's a moment in the United States where maybe we're not so proud to uh, of who we are today. Uh, we're certainly proud of our history, but of who we are today, we're sort of figuring that out. In China, they're proud of who they're becoming, with, of course, you know, a few drawbacks. And so to get back to your question about the troubled, wondering youth, Tom, at the, uh, at, at, in my last chapter, it's the government chapter, actually. So Tom and I lived together for, for around six months, maybe longer, and he is a government aspirational. He wants to play a significant role in the government in the future. It's not easy, so, but those are his aspirations. And his great fear that we talked about that particular night is that he's just going to end up in the middle. It's not that he's going to fail. It's not that he's going to, that he doesn't have what it takes. It's just that in the bureaucracy of, of government and the incredible competition of current Chinese culture, that he could just end up being just a mediocre guy and have to ride the subway. And I will say there's no more humbling experience than sitting on the roof of a, of a Chinese apartment building, looking out on a city that was made quickly and in groups. You can't help feel like an ant in that massive roiling city. So this question of who am I and what do I stand for at this moment in China, it's sort of a luxury that their parents maybe didn't have before. But I actually do think that's a common point between the U.S. and China. I, I do think that is a bridge between China and the rest of the world. You have this young generation deciding, what am I going to stand for? What am I going to believe in? What, is my, what do I want for myself, my family, my country? I think that searching element, you know, it's called the rest, I, in the book, the title is The Restless Generation. I think there is that searching, exploratory, nervous, apprehensive, and hopeful element in China that I think we have here as well. Great. I'm hoping we can get back to, you know, your friend's aspirations to work in, in government. That sort of surprised me. You know, based on my own anecdotal experiences, the level of political engagement among Chinese young people seems fairly low. A lot of young people, you know, want to be 
Chinese Communist Party members, but many of them cite resume padding and, and better job prospects as their main motivation rather than real affinity for, for political values. But what, w- what was your experience and how do you think these young people are going to shape the future of the Communist Party? It's a great question. If you were to ask me, is this young generation politically engaged? I would say no. A lot of young people, I used to say, there's a, an idiom in China. I used to actually say it wrong. I used to say, I translated it as the hills are high and the emperor is far away. It's actually, which means heaven is high and the emperor is far away. The meaning though is, I, I did this for years, it's actually really embarrassing. But the meaning is, and the idea behind it is that I can't influence the government. It's sort of like treating it like the weather. You're not going to, you can complain about it. You can prepare for it. You can predict it to a certain extent, but you're not going to change it. So why bother? Tom, in this, in this book, it, you actually hit on some really good points. He's unique in his generation because he does want to be in government, but it's at a moment when there are very few perks to being in government. The anti-corruption campaign has had a real impact on this young generation and how they perceive a role in government. It used to be, you know, the government was an iron rice bowl and then the golden rice bowl that you could actually get wealthy being in government. You could be powerful being in government. But since Xi Jinping, I remember I, I was I remember the day when he said, uh, if you want to get rich, don't don't work in government. He said that pretty straightforward. And then afterwards, we focus a lot on the tigers that she is taking down. This anti-corruption winds have blown over a lot of really I mean, a lot of people see it as power jockeying over in Beijing. But the flies on the local level have been deeply impacted too. So most young people who wanted to be involved in government to get rich, not interested anymore. That's one of the issues that Tom actually struggles with. He, I, I write about a romance that he has, about a crush that he has. You know, people who want to be in government in China, they got feelings too. And one of the issues he was facing, it was, it was a girl who had studied abroad, she came from a good family, was that she did not see the potential in his job. Him wanting to be in his government was like, why, why would you do something? When there's, when there's the potential right now, there's this startup craze going on in China and people feel like upward mobility is possible right now, which is really cool. Government is slow. It's bureaucratic. The wages are low. I remember Xi Jinping a, a year or two ago got a, a raise to I think it was $22,000 a year. I mean, obviously that's not all the money he's taking home. Well, not going to get into that, but... <laughs> It's not as lucrative as it used to be. So more than ever, Tom is faced with this idea and young people who want to be involved in government, they have to do it for their principles. They have to do it for the right reasons because the financial incentives just aren't there anymore. So we've covered a wide range of topics, everything from consumer habits to familial relationships. And I feel like these insights have helped us piece together a picture of what it's like to be a young person in China today. But what do you think is the most important takeaway for a reader? What do you hope they really learn about China from your book? Well, that's a, that's a great question, Malin, and it's difficult to boil it down. But if there is one thing I hope people take away, it's that this young generation has a strong sense of self. A lot of people approach China with the expectation that they're inevitably going to want to just converge with the West, that it's only a matter of time before they see the light. This young generation and the people that I've interviewed, the people, you know, the research that I've read, all the time that went into this book, they're proud of who they've become as a people. They, do they have grievances with their government? Absolutely. 
but they do have a sense of self that's different than just wanting to to become westernized i would even say that's a departure from the generation before them the generation born after 80 they were more they had a probably better feelings towards westernization so my hope is that that we don't when people read the book they'll see that this young generation has a sense of self and that they're approachable that you can understand them that you can that we don't have to be adversarial in the way that our economics and politics often positions us that they're just young people with dreams trying to make a better future for themselves and their families great i think that's a really wonderful note to end on and i just want to say thank you again for joining us in the studio today zach thanks so much it was a blast thanks